And so I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 3 and a few verses and into chapter 4. So follow along on the screen. Uh, Chapter 3 is really important. It sets up chapter 4 and why the believers are being persecuted. And then we'll jump through uh, and go all the way through verse 31 of chapter 4. So you can follow along on the screen uh, as well. So starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He, j- he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And jumping into chapter 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anias, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. 
they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. So this week I was, in getting ready for today's talk, thinking about um, things that go together. What are some things that go together? Well, I came up with these. Pizza and beer, they go well together. Bunnings and sausages and bread go well together. Flat pack furniture and frustration goes very well together. Cricket over the summer, if that's your thing. I don't think cricket goes with anything, personally, but hey, some of you like it. Uh, and Hamish and Andy, and I re- on the radio, I realised they're thinking about that. They're not on the radio anymore, and I just showed that I'm a little bit older than I think I am, because some of you may not even know who they are. But they go well together. Um, what else goes well together? What's something that goes together? Well, actually, persecution and Christianity, they fit together as well. The per- persecution and Christianity, they go hand in hand. Persecution is part of being a follower of Jesus. The last few hundred years, we've not felt that in the West particularly. And that's strange. That's strange. Church history reminds us that this period of time we're just coming out of has been the anomaly since the church began. Not only is persecution part of being a follower of Jesus, but actually it's part of God's surprising plan to get the message of Christianity out there. Suffering and persecution are flipped upside down in the Jesus story, aren't they? I mean, consider Acts 4. Peter and John, we've just heard it read, they experience a night in jail, they experience questioning, they experience threats before the ruling religious body of the day. Why? Because they're preaching and teaching about Jesus. They're not arrested for being rebellious. They're not arrested for grumbling about some decision from the authorities. Verse 2 of chapter 4 makes it pretty clear. The, the Sanhedrin, this big ruling council, is theologically annoyed at them. Theologically annoyed. It says greatly disturbed because they're teaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And remarkably, the little bit of persecution they face here 
has absolutely no effect, no ill effect, I should say, on the gospel message. In verse 4, it reads that many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. There'd be more women and children in that number too. You know, all the way along in Acts so far, Luke, the author, has been giving this, this steady increase almost daily, like the COVID updates that we're used to, of believers getting saved, or people getting saved and becoming believers. First it was the 120 in the room, they counted with that, and then it was the 3,000, and now we've hit 5,000 people. And that wonderful little verse in Acts 4.4 is encouraging because it tells us you can arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. But what persecution does do is it puts Peter and John in this morally dicey situation. The authorities command them to stop talking about Jesus, don't they? And with that, this this line is crossed for Peter and John. And they utter those famous words which you heard, which is right, verse 19, in God's eyes, to listen to you or him, you be the judge. Verse 20, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have heard and seen. However, Acts 4 is not a playbook about disobedience to the government or religious groups. It's actually a description of how the Spirit of God equips and enables gospel proclamation to continue, even when persecuted. Which means the big idea of Acts 4 is that when the church faces hostility, it's with spirit-given boldness as the church leans into God's sovereignty and purpose in Jesus. The church faces hostility with spirit-given boldness, leaning into God's sovereignty and purpose in Jesus. We see that in how they pray, don't we? So let's explore that. Two halves, verses 1 to 22 is the first half, and then 23 to 31, and we'll finish with some thoughts about what this might mean for us today. What does it look like? So we'll pick it up the day after their arrest, Peter and John standing in the middle of this ruling religious body, the Sanhedrin, and they're greatly annoyed and frustrated, and and they inquire of them in verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? That's, of course, healing of the lame man, teaching about Jesus in the temple. And then this wonderful moment happens, no, no later, no earlier, but just at that moment when they're asked, and it says that the Spirit filled Peter at that exact moment. And it makes us, makes, makes us think back to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 20, when he said, if you stand before the rulers of the people, like they're doing here, the Holy Spirit will be, given, will be giving you the words to say. Because Jesus would never abandon them before the rulers. He was with them. It's happening, what Jesus said. Then in verse 9, filled with the Spirit, Peter says, um, we're, we're being called to account for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we're asked how he was healed. What Peter says first is that I want you guys to know, the Sanhedrin body, that everything happened until this point is simply about God being kind. And we're called to account for God being kind. Do you understand that? Let me tell you clearly what happened. In verse 10, the historical Jesus, the one you crucified, in fact, whom God raised from the dead, he's the source of this man's healing. He's the power behind what happened. Not me, it's actually all about Jesus. 
In fact, so central to God's plan and purpose is this Jesus, Peter quotes Psalm 118, and I put the wrong reference up, Psalm 2 comes later, but Psalm 118 at them when he says, the stone you build was rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In Psalm 118, it's a picture of a stone building, and this stone building is being built, and as the building is being constructed, a piece of the building is thrown away, and it's discarded. However, the piece that's thrown away is the key part, or the cornerstone, of the entire structure. It's the one piece that everything rests on for stability and strength and accuracy, right? There's a building being built just that way, actually. And you you can see a modern cornerstone, which is the stairwell. And the first thing that goes up is this big concrete block with stairs, and then everything hangs off of the stairwell and is built around it for stability and strength. And Peter's saying, these religious ones have been building up a system in the name of God without the cornerstone to the whole structure. They've thrown it away, unaware of how precious it is. Because Jesus is the way that we're saved from this crumbling system and life that only leads to sin and death. I mean, look at verse 12, this incredibly simple, profound verse when Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's the climax of Peter's defense. Jesus is the continuation of God's plan for redemption in the world and anyone who calls on him will be saved. Anyone. After all, if Jesus can heal physically as he did this lame man, then he can heal all of our sins before a holy God. Let that be the sign. Let that be known, he says. He is the cornerstone that we need. Not to build a physical space, but to build our life upon so that he can build his life into us through his spirit. Saved to a life with a cornerstone that is kind and gracious and strong. You see, that's what's going on. And Peter's defense stops and these religious guys are just bamboozled, like totally thrown off. They just don't expect it to go that way. They're courageous, they're uneducated, they have no special training, there's nothing that... They did not expect to hear that when they arrested them. But they do recognize one thing, did you notice? What's the the one thing they realize and recognize about these two guys? And it turns out it's the one thing that matters more than anything else. That's right. These men had been with Jesus. Being with Jesus counts for more than anything else. They hadn't a clue the Spirit had filled Peter, but they could see that he'd been with Jesus. And that's just what the Spirit does. It makes it obvious that Jesus is in you. And so the only thing they can think of at this point, is after they confer and, and scratch their heads, is they say in verse 18, well, let's command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We can't deny that something's happened. We can't deny that they are uneducated. We, that everything says that something has happened. They weren't willing to perhaps hear what they had said and believe in Jesus. So they wanted to silence the name of Jesus. And then in verse 19, it reads, Peter and John together, which shows the unity they have at this point. So both of them now, 
declare in verse 19, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or him? You be the judge. Now, the weight of this verse lands on the phrase, you judge. Peter is putting the command back on them by giving them a command. That's an imperative. You judge. You see, the answer for any Jewish person at this point is, of course, listen to God. Right? It's a radical question that he's putting before them. It's all about obedience. Peter and John are claiming that obedience is now through the name of the man who died and came alive, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not the Sanhedrin. Do you see the context? These are religious leaders claiming that this isn't from God. And Peter says, don't try and take Jesus out of the equation. It won't work. He's the missing piece. He's the cornerstone that is needed for God to continue his story that he's been telling since Abraham. And so it's Jesus, actually. The Sanhedrin are enfeebling Christian witness when they say that. That's the issue. That's the issue. And then in verse 20, Peter just doesn't leave it there. He tells them why he can't. So he doesn't just say, no, we won't. You judge. He actually says, here's why I can't do that. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They can't help speaking about what they have seen and heard. They can't help speaking about Jesus, do you see? It's wonderful. The Sanhedrin is asking them to do something as natural as breathing or blinking. Don't blink. I can't. It hurts not to. I have to do it, you see? Don't talk about Jesus. I can't. It hurts. I have to, you see? After all, they have seen Jesus speaking to them. They saw him dying on a cross in front of them. They saw him raised from the dead. They were commissioned by him to tell the nations about Jesus. They're on the king of heaven and earth's authority, and you're telling me not to talk about him. I just can't do it. Oh, and I've got the spirit for that task too. I can't help it. You see, they love Jesus to bits. Jesus oozes out of them. No matter how many threats... nothing will stifle the grace of God. You prick them, they bleed Jesus, you see? They love him. And that's what true religion does. It creates a deep, burning love for God and others. And others. That's why they didn't jump to this at the beginning. They declared Jesus is continuing God's story. They declared Jesus, there's no other name in heaven and earth. Then they said, we can't not talk about this Jesus because I love you too much to not talk about Jesus. I love Jesus too much to not talk about him, you see? That's why they say we can't help it. We cannot help talking about Jesus. And that's always been the case. In the Old Testament, there is a a prophet called Jeremiah, and he's sometimes known as the weeping prophet. And and the, the, the major prophets really had a tough gig. And Jeremiah at this point in in Israel's history, had to go to the king and tell them they were going to be taken captive for disobeying God. And all the other prophets were saying, oh, don't listen to Jeremiah. And at one point, Jeremiah was thrown into a a toilet because they wanted to stop him talking about God. They persecuted him pretty bad. They put him in stocks. They threw him into a septic tank. They gave him a very rough, hard time. 
And then Jeremiah in chapter 20 is thinking about all of this. And he has this moment similar to Peter and John. And it shows this intense desire and love and conviction that God creates. Here's what Jeremiah 20 verse 8 to 9 says. The word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Imagine if I said, preach the gospel, no one will listen ever. That's Jeremiah. But if I say, Jeremiah says, if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is like in my heart a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Do you see? For Jeremiah, for Peter... For you, it is more effort, it is weary work, like holding a fire in your heart not to talk about Jesus, especially, especially when being persecuted for Jesus. And at that moment, the Sanhedrin are just thrown into confusion because they realize their threats aren't going to work. So they ended up backing down and say, well, you just go, you've, just, you've had enough, leave. But in Acts 4, God does does more than just kind of give him this shot in the arm of standing before the Sanhedrin. He does more than just filling with the Spirit for a moment. Yes, he does that. But he also gives the believers a way to navigate this. He uses the community of Jesus followers, and they turn to God, and they lean into God on prayer at this point. So God empowers them with his Spirit for that moment when they stand before the Sanhedrin. But then God does more than just give you a shot on the arm. From 23 to 31, the church prays together. So the, on their release in verse 23, the very first thing they do is go back and relay all that's happened to the believers. And as soon as they hear that, they gather in a room, guys, this is what's happened, they boldly pray to God and they say three things. Three things. In verse 24, they declare, God, you made. You made. They lean into God's sovereignty over heaven and land and sea. It's a descending description of God's sovereignty over the very highest of creation, down to the depths of the earth, and then wide and far-reaching too. The authority and everything in them, you, God, have. And this is the God we are praying to and declaring to, talking to now. Sovereign over all this, all of their life, all of life, is the comfort they need in such a moment. And that's what they lean into first. The very first thing they hear about it, they lean into God's bigness and control and sovereignty. That's the comfort. And then they consider, well, how does this sovereign God act in the world day by day? And they say, you spoke. Verse 25. They search God's spoken word for the perspective they need and to understand what on earth is going on in light of who God is. And end up going to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It's a psalm all about earthly leaders gathering together to attack the Lord's anointed. And they regard what is happening now as a continuation of this attack. Which leads them to say in verse 27, you decided... So they remind themselves that Jesus is the anointed. Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, are those who are against this Jesus. 
And then in verse 428, they declare this wonderful verse, what your power and will have decided beforehand should happen is happening right now. So it's just wrapped in God's sovereignty over their situation. Because of that, they could accept that following Jesus, proclaiming him as the Christ, yes, it would mean a level of persecution and discrimination because Jesus endured it himself. Because he is the anointed one. And with that clearly in their minds, resting in God's sovereignty, they declare two more things, the last two imperatives, commands in this chapter, and they say to God in verse 29, consider and enable. They appeal to God to sort out all the injustice and they leave it with him to do it. They don't say, take away our persecution. They say, give us boldness to keep going in the persecution, right? Moreover, boldness, we've heard courage mentioned before in our boldness. When you read that in the Bible, it's not angry bravado. The only people who are angry in this chapter are the Sanhedrin. Rather, Christian boldness is, is, boldness is courage and clarity and grace, specifically about words that point to Jesus and salvation in him and him alone. That's what Christian boldness is. It's courage to say Jesus is Lord no matter the cost. And it's courage that trusts God is at work because he's sovereign. Which is what exactly happens in the very last verse, in 4 verse 31. It says, They were all filled with the power of his Spirit to keep boldly declaring the kindness of God. See the theme running through this? God is so kind, that's why you're giving us a hard time. God, help us to be be, uh, bold and declare and rest in your sovereignty because you're so kind, and then God, in his kindness, helps that. And then for the next 24 chapters that we have in Acts, only three of them don't mention persecution again. But what they do show us is that the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. And Peter, who's the central player, the first one to be persecuted this way, he knows what it's like to stand up for Jesus in this way. And he knows that often the temptation that you and me face in this life is actually a temptation to be silent and that you don't feel too confident in those moments. I'd hazard a guess, if you're like me, that I would rather be silent than bold because I feel that's easier or my reputation might not get tarnished or there's not a lot of pressure And so I just want to shrink back and just be really nice and kind, but without declaring anything about Jesus. And Peter knows this. um, Because years later, he wrote a letter. It's called 1 Peter. And in that letter, there was churches enduring persecution. And he wrote them and he encouraged them and said, guys, I know what it's like to be persecuted. I've been there. I've seen Jesus and I've gone through it myself. Let me encourage you. And in this letter, he says... He says, Jesus has suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What's Jesus' example? He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate. When Jesus suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself 
to him who judges justly. After all, Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The first thing Peter does is pull these persecuted Christians towards Jesus and he sets Jesus in the middle of them and says, what was his response? Was it to rebel or retaliate? No, but to entrust himself to God who judges justly. And the reason why Jesus is so wonderful at this moment is because if there ever was an injustice in the world, a justice system that perpetuated a great evil against an innocent person, it was Jesus. The one who had no sin, Peter says, yet bore all of your sin and suffered in your place and was persecuted at the hands of the Romans and the Jews on that cross and died. You see, ours is not a religion that seeks our own comfort or a fair trial in this life when we're persecuted for the name of Jesus. Notice in Acts 4, the Spirit of God shows up twice to help them proclaim Jesus clearly, not rebel spectacularly. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Spirit said to them, and in verse 31, they were filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Those two key moments push the narrative forward when the Spirit of God shows up when he works in and through God's people. And that's still true today. And, moreover, we can grieve the Spirit if we don't get this right. Because persecution of a Christian is never a problem, never the issue. (laughs) But our message will not run if we go kicking and screaming because it's not the grumblers and the complainers who shine as lights in the middle of a crooked, perverse generation, Peter says. But spirit-given boldness to talk about Jesus when we're told not to, that makes the message strangely attractive. We can say more. The biblical witness about human authorities and the Christian makes it very clear that out of everyone in the land... A Jesus follower should be a model and example of obedience. Yes, there are ways to debate and disagree and make our view known through appropriate channels in our country. That's a privilege of living in Australia. We can do that. But don't think that a post-Christian culture will care about Christians. There may come a time when we say, I can't stop talking about Jesus. And there might be a consequence. We do that as our last option, not our first defense. The Spirit of God gives us gracious courage that says, I am convinced there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. I know that's confronting. I know that's hard. And you may not like to hear it. But because I love you, I must tell you that. Because I love that person in front of me, I must declare that. I cannot. I cannot keep my mouth shut about that message. I love God, I love you, I love Jesus. You must know this and make a decision. After all, Jesus really is that cornerstone that has been rejected, that you can build your life upon. And we want everyone to know that and declare that faithfully. Because talking about Jesus really is the most loving and kind thing you can do for anyone. Because it's not just about this life, but it's about eternity. 
So, things that go together. Yup, persecution and Christianity go together. But the Spirit of God and the Christian go together. And the community of believers praying for boldness and leaning into God's sovereignty, they also go together as well. And as Acts 4 reminds us, when persecution comes, the Spirit is right there with you. I saw this happen a few years ago on MasterChef. Um, Kate Brax was a contestant, and the Dalai Lama came onto the show as a celebrity guest. And when you meet the celebrity guest, you say, oh, great to see you, and you have this wonderful moment. Um, The problem here was that Kate is a Christian, and they said to her, when you meet the Dalai Lama, you must say, your holiness. That's his title, so call him your holiness. And she said... um, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and the Bible teaches only God is holy, and by the Bible standards, the Dalai Lama is not holy. Therefore, I can't call him holy. And she was the only one who went up when they got to meet him and didn't say, Your Holiness. She called him the Dalai Lama. And she was called to account by the media to explain what was going on. Why would you not call this person Your Holiness? And she didn't. And that's Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. They're called to give an account for the kindness of God. But this has always been the testimony of God's people. John, who was there, many years later had a a student that was learning from him by the name of Polycarp. And it's a great name. Um, And he said that persecution is a fitting ornament of the saint, a diadem of the true elect. Yes, persecution never, ever, ever stops the gospel. 200 years after this, Justin Martyr wrote to the Roman Empire when persecution of Christians was at its highest. And he wrote a defense to explain to the emperor, what's this strange reason Christians keep dying? What's going on? And he says, he said this towards the end of his letter. He says, though we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture, it is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind happen to us, so much more, so much the more, are there many others who become believers and truly religious through the name of Jesus. The story of persecuted Christians is the story that God loves to tell over and over again. And perhaps God is going to tell that through you. And as we've seen, no matter the situation, you can have confidence the Spirit will work through you. And just as Peter and John sought out believers, you too have been given a community of like-minded, Jesus-loving people who can pray for you And share the struggle and hardship that you face for Jesus. And each of you will have a different hardship. And each of you will feel persecution differently. But each of you are here. And we can pray for one another and lean into God just like they did. Like the disciples, we lean into God's sovereignty for comfort and perspective. And so this week, I leave you with one more thought from the book of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. Why not spend your time not working out when you shouldn't obey, but living such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2.12
live such good lives that all they can say about you is God is kind. That's so confusing. Let's be a church that lives like that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you know what it's like to suffer and to face persecution and that we have a God who is sovereign over the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And Father, we are nervous about the prospect of persecution. We're fearful of that. But Lord, help us to be bold, not angry, forcefully bold, but kind and gentle bold. The kind that says, Jesus is Lord, and I love you, and I love him, and I can't not help but say that. Father, help us to live godly lives before you and others this week. Father, as we go to work and to university this week, may your spirit give us all we need to live and speak Jesus to others and show the kindness of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.